Part One of Part Sixth of Troby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Trilby by Georges Dumorier. Part Six. Part One. Vraiment, la reine auprès d'elle était laide, quand vers le soir elle passait sur le pont de Tolède un corset noir. Un chapelet du temps de Charlemagne ornait son cou. Le vent qui vient à travers la montagne me rendra fou. Danser, chanter, villageois, la nuit tombe. Sabine un jour à tout donne sa beauté de colombe et son amour pour un anneau du comte de Saldagne, pour un bijou. Le vent qui vient à travers la montagne m'a rendu fou. Behold our three musketeers of the brush once more reunited in Paris, famous after long years. In emulation of the good Dumas, we will call it cinq ans après. It was a little more. Taffy stands for Porthos and Athos rolled into one, since he is big and good-natured, and strong enough to assommer un homme d'un coup de poing, and also stately and solemn of aristocratic and romantic appearance, and not too fat, not too much en bon point, as the laird called it, and also he does not dislike a bottle of wine, or even two, and looks as if he had a history. The laird, of course, is d'Artagnan, since he sells his pictures well, and by the time we are writing of, has already become an associate of the Royal Academy, like Quentin Durward, this D'Artagnan was a Scotsman. Ah, was na he a rogue, this piper of Dundee? And little Billy, the dainty friend of duchesses, must stand for Aramis, I fear. It will not do to push the simile too far, besides, unlike the good Dumas, one has a conscience. One does not play ducks and drakes with historical facts or temper with historical personages, and if Athos, Porthos, and company are not historical by this time, I should like to know who are. Well, so are Taffy, the Laird, and Little Billy, tout ce qu'il y a de plus historique. Our three friends, well-groomed, frock-coated, shirt-collared within an inch of their lives, duly scarfed and scarf-pinned, chimney-pot-hatted and most beautifully trousered, and balmorally booted, or neatly spatted, or whatever was most correct at the time, are breakfasting together on coffee, rolls, and butter at a little round table in the huge courtyard of an immense caravanserai, paved with asphalt and covered in at the top with a glazed roof that admits the sun and keeps out the rain and the air. A magnificent old man as big as Taffy, in black cloth coat and breeches, and black silk stockings, and a large metal chain round his neck and chest, looks down like Jove from a broad flight of marble steps, as though to welcome the coming guests, who arrive in cabs and railway omnibuses, through a huge archway on the boulevard, or to speed those who part through a lesser archway opening on to a side street. Bon voyage, messieurs et dames! At countless other little tables, other voyagers are breakfasting, or ordering breakfast, or, having breakfasted, 
are smoking and chatting and looking about. It is a babble of tongues, the cheerfulest, busiest, merriest scene in the world, apparently the costly place of rendezvous for all wealthy Europe and America, an atmosphere of banknotes and gold. Already Taffy has recognized, and been recognized by, half a dozen old fellow crewmans, of unmistakable military aspect like himself, and three canny Scotsmen have discreetly greeted the laird, and, as for little Billy, he is constantly jumping up from his breakfast and running to this table or that, drawn by some irresistible British smile of surprised and delighted female recognition. What? You here? How nice! Come over to hear Les Vengali, I suppose. At the top of the marble steps, in a long terrace, with seats and people sitting, from which tall glazed doors, elaborately carved and gilded, give access to luxurious drawing-rooms, dining-rooms, reading-rooms, laboratories, postal and telegraph offices, and all round and about are huge square green boxes, out of which grow tropical and exotic evergreens all the year round, with beautiful names that I have forgotten. And leaning against these boxes are placards announcing what theatrical or musical entertainments will take place in Paris that day or not. And the biggest of these placards, and the most fantastically decorated, informs the cosmopolite world that Madame Zwengali intends to make her first appearance in Paris that very evening, at nine punctually, in the Cirque des Bachibazouks, Rue Saint-Honoré. Our friends had only arrived the previous night, but they had managed to secure stalls a week beforehand. No places were any longer to be got for love or money. Many people had come to Paris on purpose to hear La Zingali. Many famous musicians from England and everywhere else. But they would have to wait many days. The fame of her was like a rolling snowball that had been rolling all over Europe for the last two years, wherever there was snow to be picked up in the shape of golden ducats. Their breakfast over, Taffy, the laird, and little Billy, cigar in mouth, arm in arm, the huge Taffy in the middle, comme autrefois, crossed the sunshiny boulevard into the shade, and went down the rue de la Paix, through the place Vendôme, and the rue Castiglione, to the rue de Rivoli, quite leisurely, and with a tender midriff warming sensation of freedom and delight at almost every step. Arrived at the corner, pastry-cooks, they finished the stumps of their cigars, and they looked at the well-remembered show in the window. Then they went in and had Taffy, a Madeleine, the Laird, a Baba, and little Billy, a Savarin, and each, I regret to say, a liquor-glass of rum, de la Jamaïque. After this, they sauntered through the Tuileries Gardens, and by the quay to their favorite Pont des Arts, and looked up and down the river, comme autrefois. It is an enchanting prospect at any time and under any circumstances. But on a beautiful morning in mid-October, when you haven't seen it for five years, and are still young, and almost every stock and stone that meets your eye, every sound, 
every scent has some sweet and subtle reminder for you. Let the reader have no fear. I will not attempt to describe it. I shouldn't know where to begin, nor when to leave off. Not but what many changes had been wrought. Many old landmarks were missing, and among them, as they found out a few minutes later, and much to their chagrin, the good old morgue. They inquired of a gardien de la paix, who told them that a new morgue, une bien jolie morgue, ma foi, and much more commodious and comfortable than the old one, had been built beyond Notre-Dame, a little to the right. Monsieur devrait voir ça. On y est très bien. But Notre-Dame herself was still there, and la Sainte-Chapelle, and le Pont-Neuf, and the equestrian statue of Henry the Fourth. C'est toujours ça. And as they gazed and gazed, each framed unto himself, mentally, a little picture of the Thames they had just left, and thought of Waterloo Bridge, and St. Paul's and London, but felt no homesickness whatever, no desire to go back in a hurry. And looking down the river westward, there was but little change. On the left-hand side, the terraces and garden of the Hôtel de la Roche-Martel, the sculptured entrance of which was in the Rue de Lille, still overstopped the neighboring houses and shaded the quay with tall trees, whose lightly falling leaves yellowed the pavement for at least a hundred yards of frontage, or package, rather, for this was but the rear of that stately place. "'I wonder if Zuzu has come into his dukedom yet,' said Taffy. And Taffy the realist, Taffy the modern of moderns, also said many beautiful things about old historical French dukedoms, which, in spite of their plentifulness, were so much more picturesque than English ones, and constituted a far more poetical and romantic link with the past, partly on account of their beautiful, high-sounding names. Amoury de Brissac de Roncevaux de la Roche-Martelle Boissegur. What a gorgeous mouthful! Why, the very sound of it is redolent of the twelfth century. Not even Howard of Norfolk can beat that. For Taffy was getting sick of this ghastly, thin-faced time of ours, as he sadly called it, quoting from a strange and very beautiful poem called Faustine, who had just appeared in The Spectator, and which our three enthusiasts already knew by heart, and beginning to love all things that were old and regal and rotten and forgotten, and of bad repute, and to long to paint them just as they really were. Ah, they managed these things better in France, especially in the twelfth century, and even the thirteenth, said the laird. Still, Howard of Norfolk isn't bad at a pinch. Foot de Muff, he continued, winking at little Billy. And they promised themselves that they would leave cards on Zuzu, and if he wasn't a duke, invite him to dinner, and also Dodor, if they could manage to find him. Then along the quay, and up the Rue de Seine, and by well-remembered little mystic ways to the old studio in the Place Saint-Anatole des Arts. Here they found many changes. A row of houses on the north side by Baron Haussmann, the well-named. 
a boulevard, was being constructed right through the place. But the old house had been respected, and looking up, they saw the big north window of their good old abode, blindless and blank and black, but for a white placard in the middle of it, with the words, Alloué, un atelier et une chambre à coucher. They entered the courtyard through the little door in the porte cochère, and beheld Madame Vunard standing on the step of her loge, her arms akimbo, giving orders to her husband, who was sawing locks for firewood, as usual at that time of the year, and telling him he was the most helpless log of the lot. She gave them one look, threw up her arms, and rushed at them, saying, Ah, oh, mon Dieu, les trois Angliches! and they could not have complained of any lack of warmth in her greeting, or in M. Vinard's. Ah, mais quel bonheur de vous revoir Et comme vous avez bonne mine tous, et M. Littrebilly, donc, il a grandi, etc., etc. Mais vous allez boire la goutte avant tout. Vite, Vinard, la ratafia de cassis que M. Durien nous a envoyée la semaine dernière. And they were taking them to the lodge, and made free of it welcomed like prodigal sons a fresh bottle of blackcurrant brandy was tapped and did duty for the fatted calf it was an ovation and made quite a stir in the quartier le retour des trois angliches cinq ans après she told them all the news about bouchardy papelard jules guinot who was now the new ministre de la guerre Barizel, who had given up the arts and gone into his father's business, umbrellas, Durien, who had married six months ago, and had a superb atelier in the rue Thébou, and was coining money, about her own family, Aglaé, who was going to be married to the son of the Charbonnier at the corner of the rue de la Canicule. Un bon ménage, bien solide. Niniche? who was studying the piano at the conservatoire, and had won the silver medal, Isidore, who, alas, had gone to the bad, perdu par les femmes, un si joli garçon, vous concevez, ça ne lui a pas porté bonheur, par exemple. And yet she was proud, and said his father would never have had the pluck. À dix-huit ans, pensez donc. And that good Monsieur Carrel, he is dead, you know, and monsieur savait ça yes he died at dieppe his natal town during the winter from the consequences of an indigestion que voulez-vous he always had the stomach so feeble and the beautiful interment monsieur five thousand people in spite of the rain car il pleuvait à verse and monsieur le maire and his adjunct walking behind the hearse and the gendarmerie and the douanerie and a battalion of the douzième chasseurs à pied, with their music, and all the sapeurs-pompiers, en grande tenue, with their beautiful brass helmets. And the town was there, following so there was nobody left to see the procession go by. Que c'était beau! Mon Dieu, que c'était beau! Ce que j'ai pleuré de voir ça, n'est-ce pas, Vinard? Dame, oui, ma biche, je crois bien. It might have been Monsieur le maire himself that one was interring in person. Ah, ça, voyons, Vinard, thou art not going to compare the maire of Dieppe to a painter like Monsieur Carrel? Certainly not, ma biche, but still Monsieur Carrel was a great man all the same. 
in his way. Besides, I wasn't there, nor thou either, as to that. Mon Dieu, comme il est idiot, ce vinard, of a stupidity to cut with a knife. Why, thou mightst almost be a mayor thyself, sacred imbecile that thou art. And an animated discussion arose between husband and wife as to the prospective merits of a country mayor on one side, and a famous painter and a member of the institute on the other, during which les trois Anglish were left out in the cold. When Madame Vinard had sufficiently routed her husband, which did not take very long, she turned to them again, and told them that she had started a magasin de bric-à-brac. Vous verrez ça. Yes, the studio had been to let for three months. Would they like to see it? Here were the keys. They would, of course, prefer to see it by themselves, alone. Je comprends ça, et vous verrez ce que vous verrez. Then they must come and drink once more again the drop, and inspect her magasin de bric-à-brac. So they went up, all three, and let themselves into the old place where they had been so happy, and one of them for a while so miserable. It was changed indeed. Bare of all furniture for one thing, shabby and unswept, with a pathetic air of dilapidation, spoliation, desecration, and a musty, shut-up smell, the windows so dirty you could hardly see the new houses opposite, the floor a disgrace. All over the walls were caricatures in charcoal and white chalk, with more or less incomprehensible legends, very vulgar and trivial in course, some of them, and pointless for trois Anglish. But among these, touching to relate, they found under a square of plate-glass that had been fixed on the wall by means of an oak frame, little Billy's old black-and-white and red chalk sketch of Trilby's left foot, as fresh as if it had been done only yesterday. Over it was written, Souvenir de la Grande Trilby, par W.B. Little Billy. And beneath? carefully engrossed on imperishable parchment, and pasted on the glass, the following stanzas. Pauvre Trilby, la belle et bonne et chère, je suis son pied de vigne qui voudra, qu'elle tendre ami la chérissant naguère, encadra d'elle, et d'un amour sincère, ce souvenir charmant qu'un caprice inspira, qu'un souffle emportera. J'étais jumeau, qu'est devenu mon frère Hélas, hélas, l'amour nous égara. Éternité nous unira, j'espère, et nous ferons comme autrefois la paire au fond d'un lit bien chaste, où nul ne troublera, Trilby qui dormira. Ô tendre ami, sans nous qu'allez-vous faire La porte est close, où Trilby demeura. Le paradis est loin, et sur la terre, qui nous fut douce, et lui sera légère pour trouver nos pareils, si bien qu'on cherchera, beau chercher ton aura. Taffy drew a long breath into his manly bosom, and kept it there as he read this characteristic French doggerel, for so he chose to call this touching little symphony in air and ra. His huge frame thrilled with tenderness and pity and fond remembrance, and he said to himself, letting out his breath, Dear, dear Trilby, ah, if you had only cared for me, 
I wouldn't have to let you give me up, not for any one on earth. You were the mate for me. And that, as the reader had guessed long ago, was Big Taffy's history. The laird was also deeply touched, and could not speak. Had he been in love with Trilby too? Had he ever been in love with anyone? He couldn't say. But the thought of Trilby's sweetness and unselfishness, her gaiety, her innocent kissing and caressing, her drollery and frolicsome grace, her way of filling whatever place she was in with her presence, the charming sight and the genial sound of her, and felt that no girl, no woman, no lady he had ever seen yet was a match for this poor waif and stray, this long-legged, can-can dancing, quartier latin grisette, blanchisseuse de fin, and heaven knows what besides. Hang it all, he mentally ejaculated. I wish to goodness I'd married her myself. Little Billy said nothing either. He felt unhappier than he had ever once felt for five long years. To think that he could gaze on such a memento as this, a thing so strongly personal to himself, with dry eyes and a quiet pulse, and he, unemotionally, dispassionately, wished himself dead and buried for at least a thousand and first time. All three possessed casts of Trilby's hands and feet, and photographs of herself. But nothing so charmingly suggestive of Trilby as this little masterpiece of a true artist, this happy fluke of a happy moment. It was Trilbiness itself, as the laird thought, and should not be suffered to perish. End of Part 1 Part 6 Recording by J.C. Guan, Montreal, June 2010